0: to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, chapters 11 to 13. In the previous chapters, Professor Aronnax was made welcome aboard the Nautilus by Captain Nemo. In the following chapters, Captain Nemo explains the secret workings of his marvelous underwater vessel. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now, all you'll need to do Chapter 11 All by Electricity Sir, said Captain Nebo, showing me the instruments hanging on the wall of his room. Here are the contrivances required for the navigation of the Nautilus. Here, as in the drawing room, I have them always under my eyes, and they indicate my position and exact direction in the middle of the ocean. Some are known to you, such as the thermometer, which gives the internal temperature of the Nautilus. The barometer, which indicates the weight of the air and foretells the changes of the weather. The hydrometer, which marks the dryness of the atmosphere. The storm glass, the contents of which, by decomposing, announce the approach of the tempests. The compass, which guides my course. The sexton, which shows the latitude by the altitude of the sun. Chronometers, by which I calculate sea longitude and glasses for day and night, which I use to examine sea points of sea horizon when sea nautilus rises to the surface of sea the waves. These are the usual nautical instruments, I replied, and I know the use of them. But these others, no doubt answer the particular requirements of the Nautilus. This dial with the movable needle is a manometer, is it not? It is actually a manometer, but by communication with the water, whose external pressure it indicates, it gives our depth at the same time. And these other instruments? the use of which I cannot get. Here, Professor, I ought to give you some explanations. Will you be kind enough to listen to me?" He was silent for a few moments. Then he said, There is a powerful agent. Obedient. Rapid. Easy which conforms to every use, and reigns supreme on board my vessel. Everything is done by means of it. It lights it, warms it, and is the soul of my mechanical apparatus. This agent is electricity." "'Electricity?' I cried in surprise. "'Yes, sir.' "'Nevertheless, Captain, you possess an extreme rapidity of movement which does not agree with the power of electricity. "'Until now, its dynamic force has remained under restraint and has only been able to produce a small amount of power.' "'Professor,' said Captain Nemo, my electricity is not everybody's. You know what seawater is composed of. In a thousand grams are found ninety-six and a half percent of water, and about two and two-thirds percent of chloride of sodium. Then, in a smaller quantity, chlorides of magnesium and of potassium chromide of magnesium, sulfate of magnesia, sulfate and carbonate of lime. You see then that chloride of sodium forms a large part of it. So it is this sodium that I extract from seawater, and of which I compose my ingredients. I owe all to the ocean. It produces electricity and electricity gives heat, light, motion, and in a word, life to the Nautilus. But not the air you breathe. Oh, I could manufacture the air necessary for my consumption, but it is useless, because I go up to the surface of the water when I please. However, if electricity does not furnish me with air to breathe, it works at least the powerful pumps that are stored in spacious reservoirs, and which enable me to prolong at need, and as long as I will, my stay in the depths of the sea. It gives a uniform and unintermittent light, which the sun does not. Now look at this clock. It is electrical, and goes with a regularity that defies the best chronometers. I have divided it into twenty-four hours, like the Italian clocks, because for me there's neither night nor day, sun nor moon but only that factitious light that I take with me to the bottom of the sea. Look, just now, it is ten o'clock in the morning. Exactly. Another application of electricity. This dial hanging in front of us indicates the speed of the Nautilus. An electric thread pulls it in communication with the screw, and the needle indicates the real speed. Look, now we are spinning along with a uniform speed of 15 miles an hour. It is marvellous, and I see, Captain, you were right to make use of this agent that takes the place of wind, water, and steam. We have not finished, Monsieur Aranax, said Captain Nemo, rising. If you will follow me, we will examine the stern of the Nautilus. Really, I knew already the anterior part of this submarine boat of which this is the exact division, starting from the ship's head. The dining room, five yards long, separated from library by a watertight partition. The library, five yards long. The large drawing room, ten yards long, separated from the captain's room by a second watertight partition. The said room, five yards in length. Mine, two and a half yards. And lastly, a reservoir of air, seven and a half yards. That extended to the bows. Total length, 35 yards, or 105 feet. The partitions had doors that were shut hermetically by means of India rubber instruments, and they ensured the safety of the Nautilus in case of a leak. I followed Captain Nemo through the waste and arrived at the center of the boat. There was a sort of well that opened between two partitions. An iron ladder, fastened with an iron hook to the partition, led to the upper end. I asked the captain what the ladder was used for. It leads to a small boat, he said. What? You have a boat? I exclaimed in surprise. Of course, an excellent vessel, light and insubmersible, that serves either as a fishing or as a pleasure boat. But then, when you wish to embark, you are obliged to come to the surface of the water. Not at all. This boat is attached to the upper part of the hull of the Nautilus, and occupies a cavity made for it. It is decked, quite watertight, and held together by solid bolts. This ladder leads to a manhole made in the hull of the nautilus, that corresponds with a similar hole made in the side of the boat. By this double opening, I get into the small vessel. They shut the one belonging to the Nautilus. I shut the other by means of screw pressure. I undo the boat, and the little boat goes up to the surface of the sea with prodigious rapidity. I then open the panel of the bridge, carefully shut till then. I mast it, hoist my sail, take my oars. And I am off. But how do you get back on board? I do not come back, Monsieur Aranax. Synautilus comes to me. By your orders. By my orders. An electric thread connects us. I telegraph to it. And that is enough. Really, I said, astonished at these marvels. Nothing can be more simple. After having passed by the cage of the staircase that led to the platform, I saw a cabin six feet long in which Concierge and Ned Land. Enchanted with their repast, were devouring it with avidity. Then the door opened into a kitchen, nine feet long, situated between the large storerooms. Their electricity, better than gas itself, did all the cooking. The streams under the furnaces gave out to the sponges of Platina, a heat which was regularly kept up and distributed. They also heated the distilling apparatus, which, by evaporation, furnished excellent drinkable water. Near this kitchen was a bathroom comfortably furnished, with hot, And cold water taps. Near to the kitchen was the birthroom of the vessel, sixteen feet long. But the door was shut, and I could not see the management of it, which might have given me an idea of the number of men employed on board the Nautilus. At the bottom, was a fourth partition that separated this office from the engine room. A door opened, and I found myself in the compartment where Captain Nemo, certainly an engineer of a very high order, had arranged his locomotive machinery. This engine room clearly lighted, did not measure less than 65 feet in length. It was divided into two parts. The first contained the materials for producing electricity, and the second the machinery that connected it with the screw. I examined it with great interest. In order to understand the machinery of the Nautilus, You see, said the captain, I use Bunsen's contrivances, not Rumcroft's. Those would not have been powerful enough. Bunsen's are fewer in number, but strong and large, which experience proves to me the best. The electricity produced passes forward where it works by electromagnets of great size on a system of levers and cogwheels that transmit the movement to the axle of the screw. This one, the diameter of which is 19 feet, and the thread, 23 feet, performs about 120 revolutions a second. and you get, then, a speed of fifty-five miles an hour. I have seen the Nautilus maneuver before the Abraham Lincoln, and I have my own ideas as to its speed, but this is not enough. We must see where we go, we must be able to direct it to the right, to the left above, below? How do you get to the great depths where you find an increasing resistance, which is rated by hundreds of atmospheres? How do you return to the surface of the ocean, and how do you maintain yourself in the requisite medium? Am I asking too much? Not at all, Professor, replied the captain with some hesitation. Since you may never leave this submarine boat, come into the saloon. It is our usual study, and there you will learn all you want to know about the Nautilus. Chapter 12 some figures. A moment after we were seated on a divan in the saloon smoking, the captain showed me a sketch that gave the plan, section, and elevation of the Nautilus. Then he began his description in these words. Here, Monsieur Arnax are the several dimensions of the boat you are in. It is an elongated cylinder with conical ends. It is very like a cigar in shape, a shape already adopted in London and several constructions of the same sort. The length of this cylinder, from stem to stern, is exactly 232 feet and its maximum breadth is twenty-six feet. It is not built quite like your long voyage steamers, but its lines are sufficiently long, and its curves prolonged enough to allow the water to slide off easily and oppose no obstacle in its passage. These two dimensions enable you to obtain by a simple calculation, the surface and cubic contents of the Nautilus. Its area measures 6032 feet, and its contents about 1500 cubic yards. That is to say, when completely immersed, it displaces 50,000 feet of water, or weighs 1500 tons. When I made the plans for this submarine vessel, I meant that nine-tenths should be submerged. Consequently, it ought only to displace nine-tenths of its bulk. That is to say, only to weigh that number of tons. I ought not, therefore, to have exceeded that weight, constructing it on the aforesaid dimensions. The Nautilus is composed of two hulls, one inside, the other outside, joined by T-shaped irons which render it very strong. Indeed, owing to this cellular arrangement, it resists like a block, as if it were solid. Its sides cannot yield. It coheres spontaneously, and not by the closeness of its rivets and the homogeneity of its construction, due to the perfect union of the materials, enables it to defy the roughest seas. These two hulls are composed of steel plates, whose density is from point seven, to point 0.8 that of water. The first is not less than two inches and a half thick and weighs 394 tons. The second envelope, the keel, 20 inches high and 10 thick, weighs alone 62 tons. The engine, the ballast. See several accessories and apparatus appendages. The partitions and bulkheads weigh 961.62 tons. Do you follow this? I do. Then, when the Nautilus is afloat under these circumstances, one-tenth is out of the water. Now, if I have made reservoirs of a size equal to this tent, or capable of holding 150 tons, and if I fill them with water, the boat, weighing then 1,507 tons, will be completely immersed. That would happen, Professor. These reservoirs are in the lower part of the Norse-less. I turn on taps and they fill, and the vessel sinks that had just been level with the surface. Well, Captain, but now we come to the real difficulty. I can understand your rising to the surface, but diving below the surface does not your submarine contrivance encounter a pressure? and consequently undergo an upwards thrust of one atmosphere for every 30 feet of water, just about 15 pounds per square inch. Just so, sir. Then, unless you quite fill the Nautilus, I do not see how you can draw it down to those depths. Professor, you must not confound statistics with dynamics, or you will be exposed to grave errors. There is very little labor spent in attaining the lower regions of the ocean, for all bodies have a tendency to sink. When I wanted to find out the necessary increase of weight required to sink the Nautilus, I had only to calculate the reduction of volume that seawater acquires according to the depths. That is evident. Now, if water is not absolutely incompressible, it is at least capable of very slight compression. Indeed, after the most recent calculations, this reduction is only 0. 0.000436 of an atmosphere for each 30 feet of depth. If we want to sink 3000 feet, I should keep account of the reduction of bulk under a pressure equal to that of a column of water of 1000 feet. The calculation is easily verified. Now, I have supplementary reservoirs capable of holding a hundred tons, therefore I can sink to a considerable depth. When I wish to rise to the level of the sea, I only let off the water and empty all the reservoirs if I want the Nautilus to submerge from the tense part of her total capacity. I had nothing to object to these reasonings. I admit your calculations, Captain, I replied. I should be wrong to dispute them since daily experience confirms them. But I foresee a real difficulty in the way." What, sir? When you are about a thousand feet deep, the walls of the Nautilus bear a pressure of a hundred atmospheres. If then, just now, you were to empty the supplementary reservoirs, to lighten the vessel, and to go up to the surface. The pumps must overcome the pressure of a hundred atmospheres, which is fifteen hundred pounds per square inch. From that, a power that electricity alone can give," said the captain hastily. I repeat, sir, that the dynamic power of my engine is almost infinite. The pumps of the Nautilus have an enormous power, as you must have observed when their jets of water burst like a torrent upon the Abraham Lincoln. Besides, I use subsidiary reservoirs only to attain a mean depth of 750 to a thousand fathoms, and that with a view of managing my machines. Also, When I have a mind to visit the depths of the ocean, five or six miles below the surface, I make use of slower but not less infallible means. What are they, Captain? That involves my telling you how the Nautilus is worked. I am impatient to learn. To steer this boat to starboard or port, to turn, in a word, following a horizontal plane. I use an ordinary rudder, fixed on the back of the stern post, and with one wheel and some tackle to steer by. But I can also make the Nautilus rise and sink, and sink and rise, by a vertical movement by means of two inclined planes fastened to its sides, opposite the center of flotation. Planes that move in every direction and that are worked by powerful levers from the interior. If the planes are kept parallel with the boat, it moves horizontally. If slanted, the Nautilus according to this inclination, and under the influence of the screw, either sinks diagonally or rises diagonally, as it suits me. And if I wish to rise more quickly to the surface, I ship the screw, and the pressure of the water causes the nautilus to rise vertically, like a balloon filled with hydrogen. Bravo, Captain. But how can the steersman follow the route in the middle of the waters? The steersman is placed in a glazed box that is raised about the hull of the Nautilus and furnished with the lenses. Are these lenses capable of resisting such pressure? Perfectly glass, which breaks at a blow, is nevertheless capable of offering considerable resistance. During some experiments of fishing by electric light in 1864 in the Northern Sea, we saw plates less than a third of an inch thick resist a pressure of sixteen atmospheres. Now. The glass that I use is not less than thirty times thicker. Granted, but after all, in order to see, the light must exceed the darkness, and in the midst of the darkness in the water, how can you see? Behind the Steersman cage, is placed a powerful electric reflector, the rays from which light up CC for half a mile in front. Ah, bravo, bravo, captain. Now I can account for this phosphorescence in the supposed narwhal that puzzled us so. I now ask you if the boarding of the Nautilus and of the Scotia has made such a noise has been the result of a chance reconnoiter. Quite accidental, sir. I was sailing only one fathom below the surface of the water when the shock came. It had no bad result. No, sir. But now, about your reconnoiter with the Abraham Lincoln, Professor, I am sorry for one of the best vessels in the American Navy, but they attacked me, and I was bound to defend myself. I contented myself, however, with putting the frigate hors de combat. She will not have any difficulty in getting repaired at the next port. Ah, Commander, your Nautilus is certainly a marvellous boat. Yes, Professor, and I love it as if it were a part of myself. If danger threatens one of your vessels on the ocean, the first impression is the feeling of an abyss above and below. On the Nautilus. Men's arts never fail them. No defects to be afraid of, for the double shell is as firm as iron. No rigging to attend to, no sail for the wind to carry away. No boilers to burst, no fire to fear, for the vessel is made of iron, not of wood. No coal to run short for electricity is the only mechanical agent. No collision to fear, for it alone swims in deep water. No tempest to brave, for when it dives below the water, it reaches absolute tranquility. There, sir, that is the perfection of vessels. And if it is true that the Engineer has more confidence in the vessel than the Builder, and the Builder than the Captain himself, you understand, see trust, I repose in my Nautilus. For I am at once Captain, Builder, and Engineer. But how could you construct this wonderful Nautilus in secret? Each separate portion, Monsieur Aranax, was brought from different parts of the globe. The keel was forged at Crusoe, the shaft of the screw at Peninco's London, the iron plates of the hull at Laird's of Liverpool, the screw itself at Scots at Glasgow. The reservoirs were made by Kale and Co at Paris. The engine by Krupp in Prussia, its beak in Montelas Workshop in Sweden, its mathematical instruments by Art Brothers of New York, etc. And each of these people had my orders under different names. But these parts had to be put together and arranged. Professor, I had set up my workshops upon a desert island in the ocean. There, my workmen, that is to say, the brave men that I instructed and educated, and myself have put together our Nautilus. Then when the work was finished, fire destroyed all trace of our proceedings on this island, that I could have jumped over if I had liked. Then the cost of this vessel is great. Monsieur Ironax, an iron vessel, costs 140 pounds per ton. Now the Nautilus weighed 1,500. It came, therefore, to 67,500 pounds and eighty thousand more for fitting it up, and about two hundred thousand pounds with the works of art and the collections it contains. One last question, Captain Nemo. Ask it, Professor. You are rich. Immensely rich, sir, and I could without missing it, pay the national debt of France. I stared at the singular person who spoke thus. Was he playing upon my credulity? The future would decide that. Chapter 13 The Black River The portion of the terrestrial globe, which is covered by water, is estimated at upwards of 80 millions of acres. This fluid mass comprises 2,250,000,000 cubic miles, forming a spherical body of a diameter of 60 leagues, the weight of which would be three quintillions of tons. To comprehend the meaning of these figures, it is necessary to observe that a quintillion is to a billion as a billion is to a unit. In other words, there are as many billions in a quintillion as there are units in a billion. This mass of fluid is equal to about the quantity of water which would be discharged by all the rivers of the Earth in 40,000 years. During the geological epochs, the Igneous Period succeeded to the aqueous. The ocean originally prevailed everywhere. Then, by degrees, in the Silurian period, the tops of the mountains began to appear. The islands emerged, then disappeared in partial deluges, reappeared, became settled, formed continents, till at length the Earth became geographically arranged, as we see it in the present day. The solid had rested from the liquid 37,657 square miles, equal to of acres. The shape of the continents allow us to divide the waters into five great portions. The Arctic or frozen ocean. The Antarctic or frozen ocean, the Indian, the Atlantic, and the Pacific. The Pacific Ocean extends from north to south between the two polar circles, and from east to west between Asia and America, over an extent of 145 degrees of longitude. It is the quietest of seas. Its currents are broad and slow. It has medium tides and abundant rain. Such was the ocean that my fate destined me first to travel over under these strange conditions. Sir, said Captain Nemo, we will, if you please... Take our bearings and fix the starting point of this voyage. It is a quarter to twelve. I will go up again to the surface. The captain pressed an electric clock three times. The pump began to drive the water from the tanks. The needle of the manometer, marked by a different pressure, the ascent of the Nautilus, Then it stopped. We have arrived, said the captain. I went to the central staircase which opened on the platform, clambered up to the iron steps, and found myself on the upper part of the Nautilus. The platform was only three feet out of water. The front and back of the Nautilus "'was of that spindle shape which caused it justly to be compared to a cigar. "'I noticed that its iron plates, slightly overlying each other, "'resembled the shell which clothes the body of our large terrestrial reptiles. "'It explained to me how natural it was, in spite of all glasses.' that this boat should have been taken for a marine animal. Towards the middle of the platform, the long boat, half buried in the hull of the vessel, formed a slight excrescence. Fore and aft rose two cages of medium height, with inclined sides, and partly closed by thick lenticular glasses one designed for the steersman who directed the Nautilus, the other containing a brilliant lantern to give light on the road. The sea was beautiful, the sky pure. Scarcely could the long vehicle feel the broad undulations of the ocean. A light breeze from the east rippled the surface of the waters. The horizon, free from fog, made observations easy. Nothing was in sight, not a quicksand, not an island, a vast desert. Captain Nemo, by the help of his sextant, took the altitude of the sun which ought also to give the latitude. He waited for some moments till its disc touched the horizon. Whilst taking observations, not a muscle moved. The instrument could not have been more motionless in a hand of marble. Twelve o'clock, sir, said he. When you like I cast a last look upon the sea, slightly enamored by the Japanese coast, and descended to the saloon. And now, sir, I leave you to your studies, added the captain. Our course is ENE. Our depth is 26 fathoms. Here are maps on large scale by which you may follow it. Siciloon is at your disposal, and with your permission, I will retire." Captain Nemo bowed, and I remained alone, lost in thoughts all bearing on the commander of the Nautilus. For a whole hour was I deep in these reflections seeking to pierce this mystery so interesting to me. Then my eyes fell upon the vast, plain sphere spread upon the table, and I placed my finger on the very spot where the given latitude and longitude crossed. The sea has its large rivers like the continent. They are special currents known by their temperature and their color. The most remarkable of these is known by the name of the Gulf Stream. Science has decided on the globe the direction of five principal currents, one in the North Atlantic, a second in the South, a third in the North Pacific, a fourth in the South, and a fifth in the southern Indian Ocean. It is even probable that a sixth current existed at one time or another in the northern Indian Ocean, when the Caspian and Aral Seas formed by one vast sheet of water. At this point indicated on the planosphere, one of these currents was rolling, the kuro of the Japanese, the Black River, which, leaving the Gulf of Bengal, where it is warmed by the perpendicular rays of a tropical sun, crossed the Straits of the Malacca along the coast of Asia, turns into the North Pacific of the Aleutian Islands, Carrying with it trunks of camphor trees and other indigenous productions, and edging the waves of the ocean with the pure indigo of its warm water. It was this current that the Nautilus was to follow. I followed it with my eye, saw it lose itself in the vastness of the Pacific and felt myself draw with it when Ned Land and Concier appeared at the door of the saloon. My two brave companions remained petrified at the sight of the wonders spread before them. ''Where are we? Where are we?'' Exclaimed the Canadian, ''In the museum at Quebec?'' My friend, I answered, making a sign for them to enter. You are not in Canada, but on board the Nautilus, fifty yards below the level of the sea. But, Mr. Aranax, said Ned Land, can you tell me how many men there are on board? Ten? Twenty? Fifty? A hundred? I cannot answer you, Mr. Land. It is better to abandon, for a time, all idea of seizing the Nautilus or escaping from it. This ship is a masterpiece of modern industry, and I should be sorry not to have seen it. Many people would accept the situation forced upon us. "'if only to move among such wonders. "'So be quiet and let us try and see what passes around us.' "'See?' exclaimed the harpooner. "'But we can see nothing in this iron prison. "'We're walking. We're sailing. Blindly.' "'Nedland had scarcely pronounced these words.' when all was suddenly darkness. The illuminous ceiling was gone, so rapidly that my eyes received a painful impression. We remained mute, not stirring, and not knowing what surprise awaited us, whether agreeable or disagreeable. A sliding noise was heard. One would have said that panels were working at the sides of the Nautilus. It is the end of the end, said Ned Land. Suddenly, light broke at each side of the saloon through two oblong openings. The liquid mass appeared vividly lit up by the electric gleam. Two crystal plates separated us from the sea. At first, I trembled at the thought that this frail partition might break. But strong bands of copper bound them, giving an almost infinite power of resistance. The sea was distinctly visible for a mile all around the Nautilus, What a spectacle. What pen can describe it? Who could paint the effects of the light through those transparent sheets of water and the softness of the successive gradations from the lower to the superior strata of the ocean? We know the transparency of the sea and that its clearness is far beyond that of rock water. The mineral and organic substances which it holds in suspension heightens its transparency. In certain parts of the ocean at the Antilles, under 75 fathoms of water can be seen with surprising clearness a bed of sand. The penetrating power of the solar rays does not seem to cease for a depth of a hundred and fifty fathoms, but in this middle fluid traveled over by the nautilus, the electric brightness was produced even in the bosom of the waves. It was no longer luminous water, but liquid light. On each side, a window opened into this unexplored abyss. The obscurity of the saloon showed to the advantage the brightness outside, and we looked out as if this pure crystal had been the glass of an immense aquarium. You wished to see, friend Ned? Well. You see now. Curious, curious, muttered the Canadian, who, forgetting his ill temper, seemed to submit to some irresistible attraction. And one would come further than this to admire such a sight. Ah, thought I to myself. I understand the life of this man. He has made a world apart for himself, in which he treasures all his great wonders. For two whole hours, an aquatic army escorted the Nautilus. During their games, their bounds, while rivaling each other in beauty, brightness, and velocity, I distinguished the green labor, the banded mallet, marked by a double line of black, the round-tailed gobby, of a white color with violet spots on the back. The Japanese scombrus, a beautiful mackerel of those seas, with a blue body and silver head, the brilliant Azores whose name alone defies description. Some banded spares with variegated fins of blue and yellow. The woodcocks of the seas, some specimens of which attain a yard in length. Japanese salamanders, spider lampreys, serpents six feet long, with eyes small and lively, and a huge mouth bristling with teeth. Many other species. Our imagination was kept at its height. Interjections followed quickly on each other. Ned named the fish, and Concier classed them. I was in ecstasies with the vivacity of their movements and the beauty of their forms. Never had it been given to me to surprise these animals, alive and at liberty, in their natural element. I will not mention all the varieties which passed before my dazzled eyes all the collections of the Sea of China and Japan. These fish, more numerous than the birds of the air, came attracted, no doubt, by the brilliant focus of the electric light. Suddenly, there was daylight in the saloon. The iron panels closed again, and the enchanting vision Disappeared. But for a long time, I dreamt on till my eyes fell on the instruments hanging on the partition. The compass still showed the course to be ENE. The manometer indicated a pressure of five atmospheres, equivalent to a depth of 25 fathoms, and the electric log gave a speed of 15 miles an hour. I expected Captain Nemo, but he did not appear. The clock marked the hour of five. Ned Land and Concier returned to their cabin, and I retired to my chamber. My dinner was ready. It was composed of turtle soup, made of the most delicate hawksbill, of a sermallet served with puff paste, the liver of which, prepared by itself, was most delicious, and fillets of the Emperor Holocanthus, the savour of which seemed to me superior even to salmon. I passed the evening reading, writing. And thinking. Then sleep overpowered me. I stretched myself from my couch of Zostera and slept profoundly, whilst the Nautilus was gliding through the current of the Black River."